Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. The reason Jesus is hard to recognize and the value of Christianity is hard to recognize is because all the things in the wrapping remind me that what I'm looking for, what I would expect, is not what I should be expecting because who Christ is is a lot different than what I expect. And what he is is something that is not about the, the external trappings of what the world wants. And I'm telling you, this is happening right now across the spectrum in Christianity. the threads in the Christmas story is just how unexpected God really is. Despite having scholars studying prophecies and searching for signs of the Messiah, nearly everyone missed it when he arrived. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Today, Pastor Mike Fabares continues a message that is challenging our expectations of God. We'll start today with a helpful recap. To hear this message in its entirety, go to focalpointradio.org and look for Bethlehem's Honor. Well, let's dive in. Number one, right, five words. Detect your longing for Christ. Detect your longing for Christ. If you jot that down, we'll read this text, and I want us to understand how much we actually long for Christ as romantic and sappy and unmasculine as that sounds. You do long for Christ, even though you may not know you long for Christ. And, and I think I can prove that. I can at least prove that what you do long for is not what you really want. And I think we're all old enough to know that. And I can emphasize that. But I can say, theologically, I would present to you and posit, I think what Christ is, and what he promises, what he represents, and what he says he'll bring, that is what you want. Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too, that's the word, to be among the clans of Judah, too little, too obscure, too outside, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Now, you've all read that. You know that verse. You even know this is all about David, ultimately. Well, that's true, and that's good. But let's just deal with this first line right here, this concept of him coming from Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethshon, Bethany, Bethsaida, tons of Beth name, compound names in um, the Bible. Cities were named Beth, Beth this, Beth that. In Hebrew, the word Beth means house. Uh, lahem, it means bread. And you've heard this before, some of you. House of bread. So Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, Ephrathah, this other name for it, is, um, is another word that uh, it, means, it means the place of fruitfulness. Okay, bread and fruit. Ephrathah Bethlehem, this is a, a moniker, a title that speaks of something like that everyone wants. And yet, I just want to tell you all the way back, to, to Genesis 35, this was a city that was not, it's not even a city, a village that was, was not associated with that. Matter of fact, if you were to ask anyone in the Old Testament, what does Bethlehem remind you of? Right? You, would, you would say, well, it's a really sad place. Matter of fact, there's a famous tomb there. You know whose tomb is there? The tomb of Rachel. 
right? Rachel died there. And how did she die? Tragic. She died how? Can you imagine this? Maybe some of you know someone died in childbirth. Doesn't happen so much anymore, but that's really sad. Matter of fact, as she was dying and she'd given birth to this son, they say, wait, don't die. You have a son. She, she says, I'm going to call him son of sorrow. Right? And she dies. Right? This is Jacob's wife. Jacob's wife, Israel, the head of the nation. And his wife that he loves, that he met there, the shepherdess who was beautiful and he loved her so much, she dies in childbirth. Oh, by the way, in the time that Matthew describes the birth of Christ, he describes and reminds us of Rachel, and he talks about Rachel weeping for her children. And her children there, they're weeping for, was an enlistment of the passage about her crying, and this was a prophecy of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, the idea of her weeping and the sadness of Bethlehem because of Herod slaughtering the babies there. The wailing and weeping of people, because all these children, two and under, were just killed. I mean, this is a place that is not a happy place. Not only in the birth of Christ story, not in the Old Testament story. You want to talk about a feast of bread and fruit. It doesn't seem to live up to that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to indict all of us for investing in something that doesn't work. We are hoping in something that cannot provide. We are wanting the satisfaction of fruit and bread from something that cannot provide that. You can't do any of the things you think that are going to make you happier, which is usually more money, better health. None of it will provide. Solomon, by the way, speaking of the lineage of David, had all of that. He wrote a book about it, and here was the line, and I know you know it, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. I have everything. I have sex with as many beautiful women as I want. I have all the money I could possibly want. Talk about sitting under my, my, my fig tree here. I, I've got all the gardens, all the plants. I got all the servants. I got everyone waiting. I got gold galore. I got everything. And, and he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Because here's the thing you're old enough to know, that even if you won the lottery, you understand your life would not be what you want it to be, which includes just a little bit of what we just read here. You want all the things that are here. And here's my, here's my point. You, at the core, desire Christ, even if you don't know that Christ is the means to get it all. Right? More money, not going to solve the problem. More exercise, not going to solve the problem. Lower number on the scale, not going to solve the problem. Right guy in, in, in D.C., not going to solve the problem. Do I want all those things? Desperately. Right? But I know this. I'm still living under the fall. I'm still living with Christ enthroned at the right hand of the Father and not here. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in D.C. He's not in any place on this earth except through the presence of the third person of the Godhead. But I am someone who's waiting for the coming of the kingdom. I'm supposed to be praying for it every day. That's what, how Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and not in Jerusalem where they would expect a good king to be born. Because God, I think, wants us to stop and say, well, none of this is the way you think it should be. What you long for is Christ, because he's the answer. You owe Bethlehem, house of bread, Ephrathah, fruitful land, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Back here, I'm back here in Micah 5, 2, obviously. Too little. I would like you to realize that what God valued was Jesus being born in a place that made this statement about a set of things that are much deeper than the kinds of wrappings we all like and, and desire. Iliab. 
What we need to do is to adopt God's values. And even if you're a good Christian, even if you're a pastor, even if you're a prophet of the Old Testament, you can look at something and not see it the way that God sees it and think, well, there's our solution. You need to adopt a whole different value system. And that's a hard system to adopt because the world doesn't get it. You know the history of the monarchy. If you think back to Israel having a king, they wanted a king. And, and, and God was frustrated with that. And Samuel was frustrated with that. And, and Samuel says, God, I don't like it. And, and God says to Samuel, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting what you're saying. You get that. But they're rejecting me. So give them their king. Matter of fact, I'm going to point out the guy that they want. And they, they're going to love him. Talk about, they're going to love him. Everything about him. He can be taller than everybody else. He can be handsome. He's going to be the guy to fight their battles for him. So go, go pick him out. Pick the guy they want. And so he, they picked Saul, a Benjamite. By the way, just perfect because that's the fighters, the fighting tribe. So let's give them the fighter and let's make sure he's the most handsome guy in the tribe. Give them what they want. And so they get Saul. And Saul turns out to be what, Sunday school grads? A disaster. A disaster. So then... God says to Samuel, I want you to go to a place, a little obscure town, a town that no one would want to get their king from. Go to a place called Bethlehem of Ephrathah. And I want you to go there. I'm going to send you to the house of a man named Jesse. And Jesse's going to have all these people there. And in his household, one of his sons is going to be the king. I want you to pour the flask of oil over his head and appoint him as the king. So he goes. And he goes to Bethlehem. He's about to put Bethlehem on the map to be something, hopefully, that'll be better than It's the place where Rachel is buried. And he says, okay, Jesse, I'm here and we're picking a king. And so they all come in. And of course, they start with the oldest. And do you know what the text says? Eliab is there and Samuel says, the text says that Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before me. This is him. This guy knows that Saul was a disaster. And yet he says, well, I know the world's not it and all that stuff that the world like, but here, I'm going to turn now to God's solution. And guess what? I want it to look just like that. This guy is him. He he had a hard time adopting God's value system. And so he goes through all the sons and I'm sure with everyone, they're getting lankier and skinnier and, and not as, you know, mature looking. And so they go through them all, you know, the story and none of them. He doesn't get the green light from God on any of them. And so he says to Jesse, the dad, hey, hey Jesse, um, is that all the kids you got? Well, I got another one, but, you know, I mean, re- reading between lines, you don't want him. How do I know he thinks that? Because he, he didn't even invite him to the interview. He's out watching the sheep. But you, you could have hired a neighbor to do that. But no, yeah, I, I don't, you don't want him. He's just a teenager. He's just a kid. He's lanky and, you know, just, I mean, he's a good looking boy, but just whatever. He, you don't want him call him in. So you can see Samuel sitting on the sofa in this little Bethlehem living room. I'm just wondering what's going through his mind, waiting for this kid to come in from the field. Got to send someone out, call him in. He's coming. He smells like the field. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He comes in. He's not dressed for the job. He got no gel in his hair at all. And he goes, yeah, dad, what do you need? Well, we got, a, we got the prophet here, prophet from Jerusalem. Um, and bam, God says, that's him. Do you remember the lesson that God had to teach to a very godly man? God teaches to Samuel. He says, I just want to remind you, God does not see as man sees. 
For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The reason Jesus is hard to recognize and the value of Christianity is hard to recognize is because all the things in the wrapping remind me that what I'm looking for, what I would expect, is not what I should be expecting because who Christ is is a lot different than what I expect. And what he is is something that is not about the, the external trappings of what the world wants. And I'm telling you, this is happening right now across the spectrum in Christianity. The, the Christian church, Christian colleges, Christian institutions, are all trying to make sure that they look really respectable and attractive to everyone outside of it. I want to make sure that they'll applaud. We'll change our doctrine about clear things in the Bible that are as clear as God could. I could take a fourth grader and say, read this English text to me, and then read that English text to me in Scripture, and everyone go, well, it seems to say what it says. And we have pastors in big places and presidents of seminaries in big places saying, I don't really care about that anymore, even though the church has taught that for 2,000 years, even though the Bible clearly says that. But you know what? I'm getting a lot of grief from people out there. I don't know if they're going to send their kids to our school. I'm not sure people are going to come to our church. We're going to change our doctrine. I guess I've been wrong for 40 years of ministry. I guess I haven't thought straight about this. Now I'm finally enlightened because I've read enough articles from USA Today, and we're changing our views. Why? Because the pressure of the world. You don't want David being the king. And even five years into this, he pours the flask of oil on his head. Where does David end up? Think about it. It's a 15-year gap between God saying, that's the guy and the time he finally puts his rear end on the throne in Jerusalem. 15 years. And the Bible makes it very clear as he's running around as a fugitive and he's, his, his face is on every poster in every post office in Jerusalem, he's got an army trying to track him down and kill him. And he's hiding in caves and clefts of the rock. He's writing psalms about how horrible it is to be hunted by the powers that be. And it says in the Bible that the malcontents and the distressed and those in debt we're coming and saying, oh, David, we're for you. They're the fringe, the outcasts of society. Jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and do me a favor and just read that text for me at some point today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can start in verse 18 and go to the end of the chapter, but it reminds us that everything that we are called to be faithful to do, to value, to believe, to teach is not going to be popular. They're going to call us foolish. They're going to stumble over it. If you talk about justification, through penal substitutionary atonement, that the Father's justice was, would be absorbed and spent in a wrath-filled afternoon in Jerusalem on a cross. They're going to call it cosmic child abuse, and the cool guys, they're going to stand up and write theology books now are going to say, that's passe. I know the church taught that for a long time, but finally the enlightened, you know, iPhone-carrying crowd is going to figure out what real theology is, and we're going to say, that just seems bad. That seems like God is harsh. And that hell thing, not big on that either. Let's just, do, can we do away with that? You've got to make a decision based on the second half of 1 Corinthians 1 that you're no longer playing to the Jews or the Greeks that stumble over what we think. The debater of the age, the philosopher. You've got to say it's the foolishness of God that they call so foolish that becomes the wisdom and the power of our salvation. And you want to trade that in so that you can have a respectable church experience or respectable college or respectable Christian ministry or respectable missionary outpost? You can trade in that but you lose the gospel. And I'm just saying this, I do want to be on the right side of history. And it's not about what they say in history books in the United States of America. It's about what they're writing in heaven. And I'd sure like to be on the right side of that because Christ is going to come back and separate the nations as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And you're going to say, 
I wanted you to do what I said, and I was very clear, and it was about heaven and hell and and sin and redemption and repentance and faith, and it was about the things that you started to despise because you were so concerned that we have an organization, we have a doctrine that looks like Saul. Stop. You got to decide what you want. Do you want Christ who has all the answers and will satisfy your heart in eternity? Or do you want a value system that will allow people to applaud? And I'm just saying, I I don't really care. We sing songs about the world's applause, man's empty praise. Really? For what? And yet it's happening all the time. And you're right. We could lose our tax-exempt status just by reading Romans chapter 1 in some circles. We can have people flee the church because we're not cool. Sure. We can have people that are going to report us. Watch the nations around the world and watch what's happening in Europe. Watch what's happening north of the border in Canada. We're going to have a hard road ahead, but you've got to make a decision. And I'm saying I'd rather have God's value system because in the end, that's what wins. And I know that it's not just what wins so I can be on the right side of history and be vindicated in some intellectual way. It's so that I can have the desires of my heart because I don't want to hear depart from me, you accursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus taught. Loving Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He said that repeatedly, by the way. And I just want to say, I want to be hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that means I got to wrap my mind around good biblical theology. I got to wrap my mind around the fact that my savior was born in a place that everyone despised and didn't own anything, didn't write any books. This is a leader that is disdained. Now, the Jesus of people's imagination? Yeah, Oprah is all about that. You have plenty of people that like God, but not the God of the Bible, the God of their own projections, the Psalm 50 God that's a lot like them. God is not an adjustable hat or a belt that you can cinch up to a comfortable place. We have to adopt God's value system, and that really is the decision that stands before us at Easter, at Christmas, and every other week of our year. It's a little clan, but it's the best clan ever. What did I call, what did I call this sermon? Bethlehem's honor. I mean, that, that, that's an oxymoronic phrase. God's kingly village. Do you see the paradox in that intentionally? Well, what comes from that little, that it can't even be named among the clans. It's too just dismissed in people's minds to even be seen as a clan of Judah. Well, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler, the marshal, the Hebrew word, the, 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 the king, the one in charge, the Lord, the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. By the way, when you were born, where was your origins from? Where'd you come from? Well, you didn't have a pre-existence. That's what makes you mortal. There's only one immortal person ever born, Christ. You could say, well, this is about him kind of tracing his lineage back to David. Great. Plenty of things we can look to that say, yes, of course, that's the point. He is the son of David. I get that. But his goings forth from long ago match every other passage that say things you can't say just mean that. It means much, much more, that he's the everlasting father, the mighty God. There's, no, there's nobody born that can look back at their preexistent days, and yet when they ask Jesus about how he gets off saying what he says with such authority, he says, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He said, you're not even 40 years old. You've seen Abraham? Stop with your nonsense. He said, before Abraham was born, you know this line, I am. That's, a, that's bad grammar. We're going to mark you down on, on, on that paper. But that's the point. You've been reading the book of Revelation with us in our day, daily Bible reading? 
God is described this way, the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Here's the shorthand for it. I am. That's what the angel of the Lord said, who was God, who perhaps even was more specifically, the voice of the second person, the Godhead, saying to Moses, tell him I am sent you. We derive the word etymologically, we believe, Yahweh, which is his name, conflated into the word Jehovah people use, but the word Yahweh, meaning the ever-existent one. Christ came as the ever, he is Lord. We had to think that way, we had to live that way. Number three, real quick, live like Jesus is Lord, is boss, is king, is eternal, is deity. Believe that he is the exact representation of the nature of the Father, to quote Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, that he is in him, dwells the fullness of deity and bodily form. The cult groups are wrong. Right? Jesus is Lord, and that means more than the fact that he's just some human leader that's going to lead the world. He's God. I mean, that's what we're left with. After all this great statement in, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, word is with God, word was God, we have in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, that means that there was this pre-existent reality. We've got to be unashamed of that. It's a distinctive doctrine from the beginning. It's what God said would happen in Daniel chapter 7, that this one like a son of man was going to come and all the nations were to submit to him. This is a pre-existent person that we are worshiping, which would be blasphemy if he's not God. He speaks of his experiences before he was born and you can't speak of any unless you're Shirley MacLaine and then you're making it up. And all I'm telling you is that you are someone that worships the king who has all the authority of heaven, who will come and establish his kingdom we ought to live like he's the Lord. We ought to champion his deity. He ought, we ought to respond to his lordship. Jesus said one time to a group of people in Luke 6, 46, he said, why do you call me boss, boss, and not treat me like a boss? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And even as I say that out loud, maybe there's something in your life, you immediately go, yeah, there is something. I, I'm not doing what he said, because it was hard, because it's difficult, because it's embarrassing, because I don't think I can afford it, because it's too risky, because I'm afraid. You gotta obey the king because one day he is coming back and we want to anticipate his arrival and not shrink back in shame at his coming because we're not doing what he said. Challenging words from Pastor Mike Fabares today on Focal Point as we consider just who it is we're obedient to. To hear this message again, go to focalpointradio.org. Focal Point is committed to exploring and proclaiming the depths of Scripture to those in desperate need of truth. Thank you for investing in our work so we can continue impacting lives for Christ around the world. To give during this important season, call 888-320-5885 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. Well, here's a letter we recently received from a listener in Idaho. Eric writes, the conviction that comes through the messages has caused me, over the past three years in particular, to take my faith in the Bible, and by extension, the Bible itself and God, seriously. I've been in contact with the Moody Bible Seminary to start down the road of getting an official education in theology and preaching. For this, I would appreciate your prayers, both for the work required alongside raising my family, and that God will guide me through the financial cost of the endeavor. Thank you again for your ministry. And thank you, Pastor Mike, for being such a great inspiration for me to go down this path. Well, your generosity results in changed hearts, minds, and lives. And we're committed to invest in you as you invest in us. 
As a token of our gratitude for your support this month, we'll send you a helpful resource that makes understanding theology easy. It's a book titled, The Essential Scriptures. Ask about it when you call 888-320-5885. Your support helps us pay for airtime on more than 800 radio stations and online outlets, produce our daily program, and facilitate audio streaming for more than a million people each year. Our partners also enable us to operate a lean ministry and provide a high level of service to our listeners. Thank you for your commitment to relevant Bible teaching. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you back again tomorrow for the conclusion of our Christmas series. We'll see you Friday, right here on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.